0: From the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery, I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's podcast, a drinking problem.
1: I find that this knowledge about the water drinking test has actually changed my practice, and it isn't much of an imposition.
0: First this. As Seen from Here Reaches, ophthalmologists in 98 countries transfers more than half a terabit of podcasts every month, but the potential audience is much larger. Please tell your colleagues about this free resource flattening the ophthalmic world. And while you're at it, let your residents and fellows know about Open Ophthalmology, a free basic science video podcast already a force in ophthalmic education with 1,800 viewers watching 6,000 video lectures every month. Information wants to be free. Help me give it away. The road to scientific progress is paved with inventions employed for uses other than those for which they were originally intended. For example, microwave ovens. Radar ranges really were a serendipitous result of radar research. Brandy, conceived as a wine concentrate for shipping purposes. And latisse, designed for obscure medical purposes, before its more important use as a lash thickener was thankfully discovered. Occasionally, the initial design is so thoroughly rejected that the technology is lost, only to be recovered later and adapted to a more useful design. Such is the case with the water drinking test and its new application. So says my guest today, Ivan Goldberg. Ivan Goldberg, welcome to A Scene From Here. When we talk about intraocular pressure fluctuation, what are we talking about?
1: Pressure doesn't remain constant. Like blood pressure, it fluctuates. It varies up and it varies down. And we have a very uh, rudimentary knowledge of what those fluctuations are and what they mean. And what happens to them over time, we know that glaucoma patients as a group not only have a higher pressure level than people who don't have glaucoma, but we know that people with glaucoma have a wider fluctuation in pressure than people without glaucoma, meaning that gap between minimum pressure recorded and maximum pressure recorded is greater and we know that treatment not only lowers mean pressure, but also tends to shrink that fluctuation between mean and maximal pressure. It's like blood pressure. It's not a constant. It fluctuates. And we don't have any good way of measuring it in a continuing fashion. We can only sample it and our sampling is very rudimentary in terms of the minimal amount of data that we accumulate even over time.
0: Ivan, when you talk about intraocular pressure fluctuations, you're talking about more than just the fluctuation of pressure over the course of a single day.
1: Yes, there are are at least three different kinds of pressure fluctuations that we're identifying. There's the long-term pressure fluctuation, which might be the pressure differences that we record as clinicians when we see somebody two or three times a year, and we note the difference in pressure at different visits that's long-term fluctuation shorter term is where we have pressures that fluctuate over a daily cycle so that we have pressures that in some people tend to be maximal in the early morning in other people they tend to be maximal at night or in the late afternoon some people have no particular pattern that we can identify and those are circadian or diurnal pressure fluctuations and then there are very short-term fluctuations that occur in seconds or minutes. That occur with blinking of eyelids, for example, or squeezing of eyelids, or valsalva techniques such as playing a wind instrument, or uh, lifting something heavy and holding one's breath, or, or you know pushing hard on the toilet. That sort of thing raises pressure yeah, in seconds to minutes. And we don't know uh, which of those fluctuations, the actual extent of the fluctuation or the peak pressure that's achieved or the area under the curve, if you like, of what the pressure load on the uh, the ocular tissues is, uh, which, which is important in initiating the disease process that we call glaucoma and which is important in making it more likely that the person's damage will progress. We don't know what our different strategies of lowering, lowering pressure do in terms of the influence they have on those pressure fluctuations, except the very broad brush strokes that I mentioned above.
0: How important are intraocular pressure fluctuations clinically?
1: Well, we don't even know that. That's what makes you realize this is something we've been measuring for well over a century, reasonably accurately, clinically, and we can't answer that very simple question. That's such an important question. Uh, we know that From some studies, pressure fluctuation does seem to predict patients who are going to be more likely to progress. We know from the post hoc analysis of the advanced glaucoma intervention study data that patients with pressures that fluctuate more widely in the longer term, and this is pressure differences between visits, have a greater risk over a period of five to eight years of showing progressive damage that can be documented. We know from work like, as Rani has done, with home tonometry, that people with higher pressure fluctuations self-recorded, and that introduces a whole range of inherent errors, but the data seem to suggest that there can be a difference of up to six-fold increased risk of progressive damage if your pressure fluctuations are greater than if they are smaller regardless of the actual mean pressure so from some studies we seem to have quite strong evidence that pressure fluctuation can be not only important but might be an independent risk factor for glaucoma onset and progression uh, independent of the level of pressure and then we have other data from the early manifest glaucoma treatment study for example which suggests that the pressure fluctuations are nothing more than an indication of what the underlying base pressure is to start with, so that the higher your pressure levels, the greater the chances are that your pressures will fluctuate, and it's not an independent risk factor. So the evidence we have is contradictory, and I would suspect that as a profession, we're not going to be able to really sort out the importance of fluctuations and what's important for an individual patient, very short, circadian, or long-term fluctuations, until we have continuous pressure measurements, until we have some sort of technology that allows us to know in real time what's happening to a patient's pressure. And of course, fluctuations may have varying clinical importance for the onset of the disease, or in its early stages, uh, compared with later on. And even that we have no idea about.
0: Ivan, you mentioned blinking and squeezing the eyes as causes of very short-term pressure fluctuations. What are the etiologies of pressure fluctuation over the course of the day, or as we see clinically, the fluctuations of pressures between visits on different days?
1: We don't know. We Think that it may be related to uh, water control. In other words, uh, times when people are more or less hydrated, which might influence the rate of ultrafiltration of aqueous humor. Which, if you have particularly a stressed outflow system which is malfunctioning, you can expect the fluctuations with rate of inflow of aqueous, the pressure fluctuations would be wider, and that would certainly. Uh, explain the observations that glaucoma patients have wider fluctuations and higher peak pressures than people without glaucoma, and that part of the effect of treatment is to dampen down that fluctuation. But even if we know that, um, we 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 also know that in fact ultrafiltration fluctuations based on hydration, for example. Uh, cannot explain the fluctuations that we've already measured so if it's part of the story it is only that and that is part of the story not the whole story there may be autonomic fluctuations because we know for example that people who have um, quadriplegia uh, people who are on drugs for other uh, conditions such as systemic hypertension which affect the autonomic nervous system pressure ocular pressure fluctuations become affected as well it may relate to uh, the volume of the choroid which we know can certainly fluctuate over time what controls that may be partly autonomic and it may be uh, other factors that we don't control it could be changes in episterial venous pressure so there are a whole range of possibilities but we don't know really what what causes pressure fluctuations the pulse that um, fluctuates in uh, in the arterial side certainly will have an effect on ocular pressure because the pulse effect will affect choroidal volume and it will affect the pulsing of blood through the retinal arteries as well. So the whole globe volume is affected by the the cardiac cycle. So all of these things interact and uh, what actually determines it for a particular patient at a particular time we don't know.
0: Ivan, you've convinced me of the importance of knowing a patient's intraocular pressure fluctuations, but I also have a clinical practice. My question is this. How many times do I have to check a patient's intraocular pressure to reliably know what the patient's intraocular pressure fluctuations are?
1: Well, the the first answer that comes to mind is really not an answer, and that is that the more data points that you have from the sampling that we do with tonometry of this continuous variable, the more likely you are to be accurate in understanding what's happening with a patient. But that's really not an answer. What does it mean? Well, as a clinician, you may need to record pressures three or four times in a day from as early as possible to as late as possible and to do that on more than one occasion to get some kind of an idea of what's happening to a patient and you can't assume that because you've measured pressures from say 8am to 6pm on one particular day that that's going to reflect what happens to that patient in summer versus winter and uh, reliably uh, every day that they are experiencing uh, their pressure fluctuations, and of course, it gives no information whatsoever in terms of the very short-term fluctuations. The curve with, with blinking or squeezing or, or valsalva techniques and, and manoeuvres and so on. So, um, there's no easy answer to your question, which is an important question, and that's why the water drinking test becomes of interest.
0: Ivan, we're going to be talking about the water drinking test. Now, the water drinking test has something of a checkered past. Can I get you to describe how it had been employed in the past and in what way you feel it may be useful going forward? The water
1: drinking test was developed initially after the observation uh, in the early 20th century that, in fact, drinking a large volume of water had the the significant risk, particularly in in glaucoma patients, uh, of provoking a rise in pressure, it goes back to work in the 1920s, and as a result of that observation, it was proposed as a diagnostic test for glaucoma because the the, re- the the thinking was, the reasoning was, that if you have disturbed facility of outflow, and you stress the system by loading with increased aqueous inflow, which was presumed to be the the mechanism by which a water load raised pressure. Uh, that in fact um, detecting that abnormal facility of our flow by this stress test would allow people with glaucoma to be diagnosed. But in fact the sensitivity and the specificity of the water drinking test in terms of diagnosis was shown to be unacceptable for the, uh, for the individual patient in front of us. So from a clinical point of view the water drinking test fell into uh, disrepute because as a diagnostic test, it was hopeless. It's like trying to diagnose glaucoma on the basis of uh, a series of pressure levels. We know that pressure is a risk factor for glaucoma, but you can't diagnose the disease on the, on the level of pressure. You can only diagnose the risk of getting glaucoma on the, on the level of pressure. So it fell into dis- dis- disuse. But the interest in it was rekindled as people in the last... 10 years became struck with the idea that fluctuations were important, perhaps a stress test like the water drinking test might in fact unveil or unearth the very fluctuations that people were interested in but felt it was impractical for the average clinician to try to measure by bringing a patient back over and over again to take their pressures. I mean, all of this becomes irrelevant if we have a real-time, continuous measurement of pressure. But as we don't have that, uh, all of this became the consideration. And the team in Brazil, uh, led by Remo Susana, first published in, in the recent past this idea of using it as a determinant. And the idea was to test whether... A water load and they used the water drinking test method where they asked people not to drink for some hours so they were relatively dehydrated measured their eye pressure and then gave them a litre of water to drink over a period of five minutes and then measured their pressure every 15 minutes and found that the pressure in a good proportion of patients rose peaked and then started to fall within an hour or hour and a half at most two hours And to their surprise, they found very little correlation in the extent of the pressure rise and the range of pressures that they had measured for that patient from early morning until late afternoon. But they found a very close correlation between the peak pressure that the water drinking test seemed to provoke and the peak pressure that they measured with multiple measurements through the day. And they then went on and showed a correlation between the peak pressure in the day and the peak pressure in the water drinking test and the likelihood of progression of glaucoma. So people, and these were cross-sectional studies, people who were identified as progressors were more likely to have higher pressures, whether identified by, by repeated measurements or by the water drinking test, than people who were not progressing. So we were very interested in that and we set out to see if we could replicate those results in Australia. But we did it slightly differently. We felt it didn't make physiological sense to take a 90 kilogram man and give him the same volume of water to drink as a 45 kilogram elderly lady. So we in fact um, gave 10 mils of water to drink Per kilogram of body weight. So our patients, depending on their their body shape and weight, were given very different volumes to to drink. And we published the results of a pilot study. We've now got a much larger sample of patients that we're analysing and will be publishing soon. But our initial results replicated very closely what uh, the Susana Group in Brazil had found, and that was that the actual extent of pressure that the water load uh, provoked had not a very good correlation with the pressure range from measuring pressures from 8 in the morning until 4 in the afternoon, which is when we then administered the water load, Um, but a very close correlation between the peak pressure of the water load and the peak pressure through the, uh, the day. And we were quite excited about that because it seemed to correlate. And some work that came out of New Zealand by Helen Meyer and her group in Auckland showed that by giving a smaller volume of, of water, you actually got a, um, a smaller rise in pressure. So the volume of, of fluid needed to be at a particular threshold and the 10 mils per kilogram that we were getting seemed to be what you needed to uh, replicate the one litre. Uh, that, that the Brazilian group had given.
0: How do you think the water drinking test is working physiologically? How does having that water load raising the intraocular pressure?
1: We don't know. We have a number of theories. The theories are uh, that there is an increase in ultrafiltration rates, so you are getting an increase of aqueous uh, inflow. Uh, that doesn't explain the full extent of the of the rise. Uh, there may be an effect on epistural venous pressure. That's never been proven, but it is certainly uh, a possibility. Uh, there may be an effect on the autonomic nervous control of the, uh, of the pressure levels by the water load and the effect that it's having uh, on the kidney, uh, which may stimulate a reflex in the autonomic nervous system. There may be a change in um, choroidal blood volume which of course would change dramatically the pressure in the eye. That's what's thought to lead to a pressure spike in the early morning when patients first wake up, or when everybody first wakes up, the pressure can can spike quite highly, Uh, worked by Quigley and, and colleagues in particular. Um, So there are a number of theories and we don't know for sure which one or which combination of these is likely to be the cause and they may vary uh, between patients quite significantly and they may vary between one time and another for the same patient. So that's all conjecture. Uh, All we can say is that it appears to be a useful test because it's something which is easily within the resources and reaches of clinics and clinicians to do. To bring a patient in and say to them, you know, today we're going to keep you here for uh, a couple of hours, we're going to measure your eye pressure, and then we're going to give you this load of water to drink, and we're going to measure your pressure for every every 15 minutes for the next uh, hour and a half or so till the pressure's peak and come down, is something you can do easily, and you can do it repeatedly.
0: In the context of your own clinical practice, Ivan, do you employ the water drinking test now?
1: Yes, I do. I certainly don't use it for everybody. I mean, uh, I don't think it's necessary for everybody, but uh, if there are any doubts about what's going on in a patient, then I find it really helpful, and I do it both for patients um, in whom we are about to start treatment. You know, there are glaucoma suspects who have glaucoma-like optic discs um, but have normal visual fields, they might have other risk factors such as diabetes or hypertension or they may have a family history for glaucoma and you may be reticent to start somebody on lifetime pressure-lowering treatment if their pressures do not appear uh, in the context of their central corneal thickness and so on to be particularly dangerous. So if somebody has pressures that you're measuring around 19 or 20, for example, or 18 or 21, um, and you think this just looks funny but there's nothing else to hang my hat on but they've got other risk factors, should I be treating them or not? Giving a patient like that a water drinking test and finding no rise in pressure might in fact uh, make one feel or make the patient feel a little more reassured that you don't need to do something immediately, you can uh, be safe watching them. On the other hand, if somebody in that situation has a pressure rise on the water drinking test to 25 or 26, then you are able on the basis of the evidence we've already seen published in the peer-reviewed literature to say that this patient is getting spikes. I'm not measuring their pressure at that level, but the chances are if they're rising to that level with the water drinking test, that they are rising to that level at other times and I'm just not picking it with my sampling. So I would be more inclined to give somebody like that the option uh, and even the recommendation for treatment of some kind. And then once you've started a patient on treatment, you can repeat the water drinking test and you can see what difference you've made. And it is actually quite interesting to see what difference you can make in patients like that. And I found that very useful and for the patient, very reassuring and very reinforcing in terms of supporting them in, in their adherence to the medical program. And you know, patients in whom you think the pressures are under control but they appear to be getting worse, I think it's a very useful test sometimes patients are in that situation because as you and I as clinicians know they're not being adherent to their therapy so between visits they might not use drops for example if that's what they're on but they use their drops the day or two before they come to see you so you measure a pressure that's under control but between times they are not under control and if you take a patient like that and give them a water drinking test Almost certainly they'll be doing it while on medication. And if you show that the pressure is flat, you can say to them, when you are using your drops, the pressures are not rising. So let's make sure you're able to use your drops on a a regular basis. And that can be a very strong reinforcement to them again. So it has a number of different currents that flow from it, both for the patient and for the clinician. I find that this knowledge about the water drinking test has actually changed my practice. Uh, we're not just looking at it from a research point of view now. We're actually looking at it uh, as ongoing medical management, and it's helpful. And it isn't much of an imposition. I get my uh, my orthoptic assistance to to help with the uh, the administration of the water drinking test. Um, if I'm satisfied that one of my ophthalmic technicians can take pressures accurately, then I'll get him or her to actually be the person who does the test and then brings the results in to me, because normally I do all my own pressure measurements for my patients. I don't rely on anyone else. But for the water test, I'm very comfortable, for someone whose pressure measurement technique I'm I'm confident uh, with, to do it. And so it it really isn't much of an imposition, and I think patients appreciate the extra thought and and effort that's going into their care. So I'd, I'd recommend it to your listeners to at least try it and see and see if in their hands they find it helpful or useful. We now have over 300 patients that we've looked at in detail and made the comparison and the initial 29 patients, which was such a small sample pilot study, which replicated the Brazilian results, the ongoing assessment is exactly the same. So nothing has changed in our interpretation.
0: Ivan Goldberg, thank you so much.
1: That's a pleasure. Thanks for your interest.
0: Ivan Goldberg is clinical associate professor at the University of Sydney and head of the glaucoma unit at the Sydney Eye Hospital and director of the Eye Associates in Sydney, Australia. His editorial, The Water Drinking Test, appears in the October 2010 issue of the American Journal of Ophthalmology. ask questions of Dr. Goldberg or any of our previous guests, or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. Write to me with your questions or comments at jayoungmd at gmail.com. As seen from here is a production of the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.